You are listening to Shelf for Libraries in Edmonton on CJSR. We're a group of library students at the University of Alberta who are raising awareness about topics such as censorship, freedom of expression, and social responsibility. My name is Marin. My name is Michelle. And we'll be your hosts for this hour of library-centric radio. Thanks for tuning in. On each episode of Shelf for Libraries, we explore a different issue in library and information studies. This is a very special episode of Shelf for Libraries because you are tuning in during the CJSR Fun Drive. Yay! <laughs> so we are broadcasting live today and collecting your pledges to help keep CJSR and shows like Shouts for Libraries on the air. All the programming you hear on CJSR is produced by volunteer community members. This makes CJSR unique. It's radio for the community, programs by the community. Programming that is untouched by marketing groups and demographic surveys. If you believe in what we do, please give us a call at 492-2577, extension 0. So, let's move right along into our show. So, have you ever felt that the libraries on campus might be haunted? Well, we've got some spooky tales for you about the Rutherford Library that is sure to make your blood curdle. So, let's give them a listen. Here we go. Rutherford is an old building. I mean, it's been around, I mean, they built, they started building it in 1948 and it was finished in 1951. So think about how many generations of people have gone to school and have studied here. Um, there is a presence here. Um, when we open, th- when we op- when I open in the mornings, I, I have a habit where I take my, my iPhone and I put an earbud in one ear and I listen to some kind of loud upbeat music because it makes me feel a little bit more, I don't know why it makes me feel safer. Um, there have been times where I've come in and I've felt like there's someone there or I've heard something and then I've said hello and there's no one there. So flicking on the lights, I kind of, I have a brisk, I have a pattern, I have a brisk, brisk pace that I walk and I put one earbud in and I kind of, you know, jam as I go because otherwise you can very quickly get a little bit, you know, you can get the EBGBs a little bit. There is a feeling like there is something here. So my name is Hannah Pierce, and I've worked at the Rutherford Library for 13 years um, I uh, in various positions. And basically, my only real creepy experience happened probably, oh, it must have been pre-2008, So um, because I was working in what was then called circulation. We now call it access services. But it was, I don't know, it was late evening. It was already dark outside. Um, and I was just in the very, very deep corners of the stacks. And the way that that floor is designed, you have to understand, there's two central staircases in the back there, and they're very tight and very enclosed. Um, those used to be the original stacks of the Rutherford Library when it was all behind a desk and you had to request books. And so I was in the deep corner and I was looking for a book in sort of the philosophy area. And I, I noticed a gentleman walk past me and he was dressed in very sort of strange clothing and it was strange enough that I kind of did a sort of eyebrow raise like hmm that's kind of strange and I mean I've seen some strange things so you know I kind of kept doing my job he was dressed in sort of like a tweed three-piece suit um, high collar his hair was slicked like almost like it waxed or some kind of gel and he was very quiet and he just kind of walked right past me and he walked into sort of like deeper into the into the collection and I thought to myself oh weird and then I just kept working and kept looking and I found the book that I was looking for and put that in my arm and looked at the next one and realized oh okay that one's behind me so I went to turn around and there was no guy and even to this day like I'm still getting goosebumps (laughs) because no word of a lie it was like where did that dude go (laughs) where did that weird guy go and I would have noticed because he he caught my notice. And so I was like, okay, this is really weird. I'm going back to the desk. <laughs> and I didn't look for that book. I just went back to the desk and I told my colleague, I'm like, okay, the weirdest thing just happened. I'm totally freaked. And I mean, she laughed at me. And I've told the story to people many times since, but I'm, I still to this day have no idea where that man went because there was no way for him to exit that way. The way that floor is designed, he would have had to come back the way he came. Um, so I'm very glad that they have now since then sealed that area of Rutherford Library and it now belongs to the special collections so they can keep that ghost. <laughs> My name is Kayla Larson and I'm an Indigenous intern with U of A Libraries. I work in Rutherford Library and this is my coming on my second year working there. 
when I first started working for the libraries, one of our jobs is to open the libraries, Rutherford North and South. So it was about my second time ever opening up Rutherford South by myself, which means um, opening up the second floor, including turning on the lights in the Harry Potter room, as well as the labs. So because I'm a little bit paranoid of opening up anything by myself, I always leave the two doors locked as I'm turning on the lights. So I come up to the second floor, go through the door, make sure it's closed behind me and the two doors are still locked and I go into the Harry Potter room and I start turning on the lights on the big switchboard. As I'm turning on the lights, I could hear what sounded like somebody walking around in the common room. And so I kind of stopped and I looked around and I didn't see anybody. I started switching on the lights again and I heard somebody walking around again. So I stopped and I said hello and nobody answered back. And once I said hello, the walking stopped. And it was really spooky because first thing in the morning, nobody's there. It's about eight o'clock in the morning. I know the doors are locked behind me and there's no other way of getting up there unless you have a key. So it was really scary and I, after that, opened up all the doors and ran downstairs to find the other person who was working opening up Rutherford North. And that's my scary Rutherford ghost story. Hi, my name is Ursula Pellmeyer and I'm a public service assistant in the Rutherford Library. The story starts about 10 or more years ago when I was on Tier 2A in Rutherford South. Just uh, about 4 p.m. in the afternoon, a few days before Christmas, pulling books from the shelves. And suddenly I saw a movement out of the corner of my eye. And I looked and I saw that monk-like figure going by with a dark brown or black habit. I couldn't see any features but uh, because his hood was over his face and his hands in his sleeves. So all I could see something going by. And once he was out of my vision, I creeped to the walkway and looked and there was nobody there. He couldn't have gone anywhere. I didn't hear any footsteps or anything. And you should have seen me how fast I ran down those stairs. <laughs> That was Hane, Hannah. That was Hannah Pierce, Kayla Larson, and Ursula Pilmier with stories about the Rutherford Library that are definitely going to make students comfortable studying there. <laughs> if you're just tuning in, you are listening to Shout for Libraries, a show about librarians and the issue that matter the issues that matter to them on CJSR. You've also turned in during CJSR's Fun Drive. CJSR is a radio for the people, by the people, and we're collecting pledges to bring you the programming that you love. Also, to mention, we have a couple of sponsors here. Our food sponsor is Padman... Padmanadi Vegetarian Restaurant. Thank you very much for feeding our volunteers. And our drink sponsor is Earth's General Store. So give us a call right now at 780-492-2577 or visit the website at cjsr.com donate to pledge your donation and for a chance to win some amazing swag. $30 gets you a Friends of CJSR card, $75 gets you a CJSR card and a button set, $150 gets you all of that and a t-shirt, $250 gets you all of that and a tote bag, $500 gets you all of that and a sweatshirt, and $600 gets you all of the above and a notebook. We also have a very special prize package that we are drawing for at the end of this show that uh, of our one hour segment here today that includes very popular books, some candy, it's very Halloween themed so all of the books are very, very spooky. Uh, now let's get back to it. We're joined today by two very special guests, Marty Chan and Ben Elher, with us to talk about what libraries might look like in the future. Okay, so hi, Marty. Hello. Hello. Okay, so uh, can you tell us a little bit about the work that you do as a storyteller? Well, I'm both a uh, kid's author and a storyteller. I go out into schools and I uh, try to entertain and educate kids with my stories. Uh, a lot of times I do uh, folk tales, uh, Asian folk tales, and I incorporate a little bit of stage magic and improv because kids today need some action <laughs> adventure in their storytelling. 
So you also do a lot of workshops on story writing and storytelling. Um, what advice would you give to people who just want to get started with writing and aren't really sure where to start? Uh, the best thing for somebody who's just getting started is find stories that you can connect with. Sometimes they're personal stories. Sometimes they're stories that you love or genres that you love to, to write. Uh, I always aim for something that is personal and something that uh, I love as a reader because if you're going to start something, you're going to spend a long long time with it. You might as well do something that you actually enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know that you've written a lot of nonfiction and, 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 for th- and also for theater as well, um, but a lot of your works are for uh, young adults. Um, what excites you most about writing for that audience? I think one of the best things about writing for young adults and kids is that they're an incredibly honest uh, audience. <laughs> uh, when I used to work in theater, I never knew what the audiences thought of the plays because they'd sit politely and they'd applaud when they were supposed to and they'd laugh at supposedly the right places but then I knew they'd be trashing the play on the way home so I never knew what they thought but when I went into schools and did presentations uh, kids would tell me to my face exactly what they thought (laughs) it was great when they said they loved the book and it was really painful when they said it sucked (laughs) oh dear but I Um, like that honesty from kids so that's that's why I've gravitated to writing for kids well, you've got a thicker skin than I do, for sure. No, I, I curl up in a ball and cry at the end of a school <laughs> session. Oh, no, little Timmy didn't like that. Uh. <laughs> okay, let's meet Ben. Ben Ellers, hello. Hello. Hi. Hi, Ben. So, hello, thanks for having me. <laughs> thank you very much for coming on. You have a very interesting job. Uh, you work for the Edmonton Public Library Makerspace. Can you tell us and our listeners what that is? So basically the Makerspace is a section of the library. Uh, we used to be at the main branch downtown before it turned into a parkade for its Halloween costume. Um, <laughs> very expensive to do, but I think it was worth it. They pulled it off. And uh, now we've relocated to the Enterprise Square branch, which uh, is still a thing. You should come by and check us out. And uh, basically, the Makerspace is a part of the library where people can work with new and emerging technologies. Uh, We have some kind of light fabrication in the form of 3D printing, vinyl cutting, and uh, really just kind of connect with it on a personal level, explore kind of what it's about, what its relevancy and imp- imp- uh, implications for their life may be. Um, some people use it as their sole source of access to this technology. Other people kind of cruise in and use it as a try-before-they-buy kind of model or just kind of get help and advice on projects that they're working in on the side. And so uh, we do a lot of school tours. Uh, we do some programming where we introduce different topics to people in a very kind of friendly, entry-level way. And um, we do some fun stuff on the side, too. So uh, we're getting ready to unbox our virtual reality headset, I think, here any day now. Uh, we got a new HTC Vive to hook up to our gaming computers. And uh, I think that's going to be a lot of fun. Gaming. So is gaming a big place of the makerspace um, programming? And if so, uh, what function would you say that it has in the library? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. When we started the makerspace, we kind of... I like to think that it was a Trojan horse for introducing permanent gaming stations into the library. Um, we have a lot of passionate gaming librarians on our staff, and I think this is something that they wanted to do for a long time. And so they kind of saw an opportunity, they threw it into the proposals, and it got stamped, and we've had some really, really strong success stories coming out of it. So. Um, my personal role in it is uh, I run like a series of gaming nights every Friday night in the downtown library. Uh, tonight's board gaming. If you want to stop by, we'll start in about 45 minutes. Um, but uh, we do other stuff too. Uh, League of Legends is kind of our first game that we started playing. And we see usually a regular turnout of like 10 to 20 people uh, will show up and play games in person where they used to just kind of be faceless opponents on the internet. And um, I think uh, last week was actually our high water mark. We had, I think, over 80 people turn out to play Hearthstone. Um, in our branch, which kind of totally caught us off guard as part of a in-game promotional tie-in for a cosmetic item. But uh, that was enough to drive people to our event, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Well, uh, now you're going to have to deal with me showing up in sweatpants and uh, not leaving for a couple hours. <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> we got plenty of tables. <laughs> 
so I've been prompted by people at the station here who know you to uh, ask you about your Marxist robot utopian scenario. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hi, Kendra. <laughs> <laughs> that was the one, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I think uh, we were kind of talking about nightmare scenarios for yes. the future of library. Um, <laughs> so the, the Marxist robot utopian scenario would probably be my personal, I'm personally hoping this comes to fruition, but basically in this future scenario, robotic labor and artificial intelligences have completely uh, obviated the need for physical labor production, and we can all live lives of idle celebrating culture and knowledge and learning within the context of like this grand and uh, important library system with shared space and shared resources and uh, basically just a life of leisure. Um, unfortunately, to do that, we have to enact like rigorous communistic Marxist <laughs> divisions of uh, or distributions of capital and wealth. So for, for many people, this would probably be a nightmare. So. Okay, so you're hoping for the best possible combination of Star Trek and Terminator. That's... Uh... <laughs> That's a fun one. As <laughs> Thank long as you. the robots, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> as long as the robots are benevolent. Well, thank you yeah. for these excellent predictions. Okay, so along those themes, we're going to now ask Marty Chan to pull something from our sort of hat. It's actually just a pile of paper on the desk, but none of you could see that. So it's a hat. Uh, what do you think that a library would look like and do in a world where... Uh, winter is coming here 24-7, 365 days a year. So a world of eternal winter, uh, which may come true if Donald Trump presses the red button, we will have a nuclear winter. Uh, a dystopian future in a library with a winter landscape. I imagine a Mad Max Fury, Ro Fury Road. Instead of a desert setting, it would be a winter setting. Uh, and instead of protecting water, I think everyone would be protecting uh, Wi-Fi. There would be some sort of Wi-Fi tower that's being protected. And the villain would be uh, the descendant of uh, Jason Kenney. And he would be coming to the library to try to destroy the last bits of knowledge. Uh, and uh, uh, we would have to fend them off with uh, uh, information ninja librarian warriors. I think they would be the protector of the world's information. <laughs> I'm so excited for library to school to have an entire ninjutsu section. Yes, you will yes. have to go uh, sword training. Sword training along with research. Yes. <laughs> okay, and Ben, we have we have selected for you, what does a library look like and do in a world where we all live underground and have become mole people? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... Um, in this scenario, I think we would probably, um, oh, that's a tough one, mole people. <laughs> so, mole people, um, we would. Remembering that moles are blind, what are you going to do? What are you oh gonna dear, moles are blind. Okay, there you go. So, in that case, we would probably be relying on our significant collection of audiobooks in order to promulgate culture from generation to generation. Um, having lost the written word, uh, we would be basically just uh, recounting history through the dulcet tones of Ira Glass and uh, This American Life podcast, which uh, will be preserved on uh, very sacred hard drives, which would then have special places in, in our tabernacles. <laughs> I also I also think that the 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 uh, shining savior would be uh, Mike Birbiglia. We'd all be like, oh yes, what are the words of Mike Birbiglia? <laughs> I also think that moles have very sensitive noses. I have heard this. So you could have uh, nose feel braille happening in your libraries. Hmm. I don't know if you have a section for that yet, but very important for the mole people apocalypse. <laughs> Well, the snot runneth among us. <laughs> the future is coming. Okay. So if you are just tuning in, welcome to Shout for Libraries on CJSR during during the CJSR Fun Drive. 
We're a unique community resource that all citizens can use to share their passion for music and politics that are not often heard on the mainstream media. For many of our regular listeners, especially those who avoid mainstream radio, CJSR isn't an alternative station at all. For them, CJSR is the only choice on the dial. If that sounds like you, give us a call right now at 780-492-2577 at extension zero. Okay, so now we have another haunted library story coming up from our very own Chris Joseph. Here we go. Boo! Good evening, listener. My name is Chris Joseph, and this next true story comes to us from the Cameron Library on the University of Alberta campus, as told to me by the security guard who watches the building overnight. The library was originally opened in 1964, so it's certainly not the oldest building on campus, but millions of people have moved through it over the last 50 years, and both the books and the walls have always been listening. For the last few years, the main floor and the basement of the library have been a 24-7 study space for students in the fall and the winter. The service desk closes in the evening, and the upper floors of the library are locked tight for the night after they've all been cleared and checked by the staff. The security guard watches over the other public floors overnight, and he finishes the shift by checking and opening the upper floors for the new day. This story took place about a year ago at the end of a work shift for Anthony, the security guard. Anthony's sister was a student at the time and had just pulled an all-nighter on the main floor of the library. As the night shift came to a close and Anthony started checking and unlocking the upper floors, his sister decided to tag along. Moving from the top of the building and working the way down, they began turning on lights and unlocking doors. The fourth floor was empty, as usual. The map collection sat silently, the study carrels were empty. The circumpolar collection rested, undisturbed. Just as he had done every night, Anthony did a circuit of the fourth floor before taking the stairs down to the third. His sister followed close behind. Anthony opened the locked door to the third floor and turned on the lights. The third floor holds most of the library's physical book collection and is filled with shelves that stretch from floor to ceiling. As Anthony began navigating his way to the other end of the floor to open the other doors, he began to feel a presence he'd never felt before. He felt like he was being watched. His walk slowed as his heart began to race. He'd never felt anything like this before when working in Cameron. He looked behind himself to see if he was alone, and the aisle was empty, the books undisturbed. He turned his gaze back to the other end of the aisle, and his heart skittered to a stop. At the end of the shelf, a body was slowly walking between the aisles. The sight of a person on the floor where no person should be would be alarming enough, but this wasn't even a whole body. Anthony stared, terrified, as the lower half of a body, wearing black pants, crossed the aisle in front of him and disappeared again from view. Anthony called out for his sister. Maybe his eyes were playing tricks on him. Maybe it was her. Almost instantaneously, his sister's voice responded, but from far behind him near the entrance door. The body Anthony had seen simply could not have been her. Anthony moved quickly back to his sister and asked if she'd seen anyone. She hadn't. Anthony described what he'd seen and insisted that they check the floor to see if perhaps someone had found a way to hide upstairs all night. They split up, talking all the while to make sure they knew where each other was, and they swept the floor. They checked the bathrooms. They checked the books. They even checked utility rooms that were normally locked. Anthony and her sister were the only living things on the third floor. Anthony hasn't seen the apparition since, and he still works nights at Cameron, but he's always a little on edge now when he checks the third floor and he wonders if the disembodied soul will ever show itself again. The director will see you now. You've come far, young travelers. Welcome to CJSR, the universe's finest multiplex broadcasting on any subspace frequency. It began as a mighty community radio station back on Earth, built with decades of love and dedication by volunteer DJs and listeners calling in to donate. We continue that proud tradition today at the center of the Atraxis Cluster. Are you ready to take your place and help us build a bright tomorrow? We're ready, Director. 
Donate now. Call 780-492-2577 or go to cjsr.com. CJSR, we are the future. Welcome back to to Shout for Libraries on CJSR, where I am so jealous of Chris's scary story voice. <laughs> you are tuned to listener-supported community radio, so that means that we rely on each of you to provide us with the means to keep this radio station going. Fund drive dollars make up one-third of CJSR's annual operating budget. If you support what CGR brings to CJSR brings to the community, then show it by giving us a call at 492-2577, and you can talk to some of our lovely volunteers who are out there. Oh, they look so ready for your phone calls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> We're back with our guests, Marty Chan and Ben Elhers, as we find out what they think what libraries might look like in the future by drawing scenarios from our definitely existent hat. It's there. All right. I see it. <laughs> Here we go. Tower of Babel. A virus and or glitch in the matrix, maybe act of God, results in everyone on Earth suddenly speaking a different language, unable to understand anyone else. How do libraries adapt? I think they would become the keepers of emoticons. <laughs> uh, we would move from a verbal language to something completely visually based, uh, and uh, we would uh, resort uh, to just chalk drawings on slates. Uh, so you would be able to communicate with the other person through a chalk slate. You would actually draw the emoticon across the slate to let the other person know uh, what you're thinking, how you're feeling. And of course, uh, if somebody uh, had doodled improperly, uh, it could possibly set off a civil war within Canada, uh, all because somebody put a tongue when they meant to put a smiley face. Can't use a tongue when you're talking about Connor McDavid, okay? <laughs> <laughs> And Ben, what do you think? I envision a world where basically we're all stuck. We're still, this is still a nightmare scenario, so we're all still glued to Facebook. But instead of actually like talking about things like politics and um, I don't know, what else do people talk about on Facebook? Just politics. Uh, yeah, right now. <laughs> just politics, yeah. Um, it'll basically just be replaced with these uh, cute cat videos and pictures of what they ate for dinner. So basically, not much different. <laughs> it's probably a better place, let's be honest. A better place. <laughs> I was going to say, if my conversations right now were mostly cat pictures, I don't think I'd be upset. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the next scenario. So what does a library look like and do in a world where librarians are monsters? Oh, well, that's the end of the world. That's the end of the world. The librarians are monsters because they have all the information. <laughs> they know exactly everything that uh, causes us fear. They would know everything, uh, the, the, the most efficient way to do us in. Uh, they would be able to track us wherever we go. Uh, I imagine, uh, if, if uh, I'm dating myself, but the, the movie Halloween with Michael Myers, sort of that relentless serial killer with the white mask just moving down, except you would just have this librarian sort of uh, endlessly tracking us down. And instead of a mask, uh, you would actually have like a library card across uh, their <laughs> face. And there could be no place that you could go. And uh, uh, when you were killed, what would be left across your body is the barcode for, uh, uh, for a book. And you would even be cataloged. And, and maybe your body would be slotted into this giant Dewey Decimal system uh, for all the victims of the librarian monsters. <laughs> Thank you for coming up with a specific monster and not just, you know, librarians are werewolves now. They will eat everyone. Information monsters. There we go. Information, Information monsters. That's monster. much better. Thank you. And Ben, what if we all were monsters? Mmm. Our... <laughs> so, um, I would say that uh, our... our unnatural urge to categorize everything would kind of result in this, uh, oh, I'm picturing this, this perfect librarian monster where uh, people would get deconstructed and then each part of their anatomy would then be sorted out appropriately, so kind of like this nightmare biological sciences scenario. Um, 
And interestingly, there are a lot of horror movies that already take place in libraries. So I think uh, there, there's some precedent for libraries already being somewhat of a, a horrific space anyway. So this could work. <laughs> I Stalking do like the that. Stacks. Yeah. <laughs> in all of these scenarios, the librarians win. <laughs> <laughs> or, oh, they could be mutated. They, they could have been bitten by a radioactive bed bug. <laughs> yes, those, those not that I'm going to bring up any suggestion that there are bed bugs in libraries. No, no, they do not exist. No, not at all. Certainly not on campus. Yeah. Never. <laughs> oh no, they'll never live it down. <laughs> all right. So next scenario coming up uh, that does not include bed bugs. All right. So what does a library look like and do in a world where it says clowns? Enough said just clowns I don't think that even needed to be said let's why are we going there <laughs> Marty Clown, and I, I, do clowns scare you a dystopian future with clowns uh, I see libraries and sewers and uh, information is distributed by red balloons uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, we have the, the cheesy carnival music that plays over and over again that's the only thing that is left in the library collection is cheesy carnival music. And I, I envision a super tiny car driving from city to city and piling out of that tiny car are clown librarians uh, descending on uh, people. It's, it, it'd be like a throwback to the bookmobile, but instead of delivering books, they deliver nightmares to children. No, I want to go back to the ninja librarians. <laughs> the clown opened the weirdest door ever. <laughs> And Ben, do clowns scare you? Do they keep you up at night, or are you going to embrace the clowns of the library? Uh, I'm going to. I've met a few clowns in my life, and and they are fine and upstanding people. <laughs> and I can never imagine them turning to a life of monstrous evil. So, I, I'm going to stand by the clowns in this one. <laughs> you met the wrong clowns. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, in a previous life, I was a children's entertainer. I worked for a local company, and the worst gig I ever had was there apparently was a fishing derby along the North Saskatchewan River, and uh, I guess the organizers decided it'd be really fun to have a clown go out amongst the people fishing and make balloon animals. And of course, there's no paved road to get down to the river. So I had to trek down a trail in a giant clown outfit, big shoes, white makeup. And I would approach these people fishing with their sons and daughters. And I would emerge from the bushes and go, would you like a balloon animal, kid? Marin, we've been infiltrated. One of them is already here. <laughs> There's a clown in our midst. That reminds me of a story that my friend once told me where she did one of those princess party uh, she, oh, gigs. Dear. And uh, one of the strict rules about princess party gigs is that you're not allowed to ever dress in your princess gear and then drive. You're meant to drive to the location, find, I don't know, a bush or something oh, yes. similar to, uh, and then emerge as a princess and walk to the party. So, of course, she thought that this was stupid, and she decided to just get in her princess gear and, and drive, to the, drive to the event. And she soon discovered why you are not ever meant to do this, because she got into a horrible car accident and had oh, to no. emerge as <laughs> Cinderella, <laughs> who had just got into this car accident and couldn't drive a car. And she said it was one of the most embarrassing things, and that's how she discovered that this is why you are not meant to be a princess driving a car. And there's just a glass slipper left at the scene of the accident. <laughs> Come back the next day after midnight and it's just pumpkin carnage. What? How do you explain that to the insurance companies? Okay, so we're going to do one more scenario. Uh, let's see here. So we've got what does a library look like and do in a world where the dead are rising? They're coming to get you, Barbara. Here comes one now. Zombies? A, a, a library in a world of zombies. Oh my goodness. Uh, I would say that uh, the thing 
uh, that uh, would happen to the library is it would become the one place of sanctuary uh, because you could fend the zombies off because uh, you'd have books and those incredibly heavy shelves that you could uh, use as a barricade. And the thing that's great about the bookshelves is that uh, uh, it would form, form a fence, but because of the space between the shelves, you would have your spear so that you could gut or, or you know uh, hit the zombie in the head without getting bitten. Not that I've been thinking about zombie apocalypse scenarios at all, but I have, I have occasionally thought about how I would defend myself uh, if the zombies ever uh, took over the world. Specifically in a library. What about you, Ben? I think this is one of those scenarios where modern architecture definitely does current libraries a disservice. Um, I look at the new ones, and they're all open, spacious, big windows. I do not want to be in that building when the zombie apocalypse comes. Um, rather, I think it's the older libraries, like the Carnegie ones, or like those ultra-brutalist ones from the 60s, like uh, the old version of Milner, where you have all those tiny windows. That would be oh, super yes, easy yes. to defend. Um, so I think really the older and perhaps less funded libraries would be, uh, come out ahead in this scenario. Um, yeah, the new Milner, I think, uh, in a zombie apocalypse, like it looks really nice. Like, the, the renders seem pretty cool, but... I, I, it gets like a zero on zombie defendability. It'll just be a so. feeding ground. <laughs> That's where you go, and then they all just get you. That's a problem, though. You've got to get to the library in the zombie apocalypse because there are so many skills that uh, I don't have. I have to get there in order to figure out how I'm going to eat aside from stealing things from the grocery store until everything goes bad. So at some point, you're going to have to fight all of these zombies Again, I think we've got to start thinking about that in our modern library architecture because this is going to be an absolute problem. At least there's things to hit the zombies with when you're in a library. <laughs> That's true. Like Maybe it. you could build a moat around the new uh, Stanley Milner. <laughs> a zombie <laughs> moat. Zombies can't swim. Problem solved. I, I'm, I'm going to put that out there. Zombies cannot swim. I know there's a, apparently an Italian zombie movie where a zombie does fight and defeat a shark, but I, I just do not <laughs> want to subscribe to a world that zombies can swim. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you to our wonderful guests, Marty Chan and Ben Ellers. You have been most, most insightful with your wonderful predictions that will hopefully never come true. But if they do, then we are well prepared thank you to you and um, if you're just listening you are listening to Shout for Libraries on CJSR during our annual fun drive and we just had a walk-in donation from Bill so thank you so much Bill for donating to CJSR and I just heard a phone call so that's so <laughs> exciting that means that it's working someone is phoning thank you thank you kind caller whoever you are it's a clown <laughs> <laughs> it's a clown oh god clowns are allowed to donate but we need a wall between the clowns and me <laughs> all right so coming up we've got a little song for you it is called do they know it's halloween by north american halloween prevention initiative here we go
Mr. Halloween. <laughs> the world can't hear your useless plea. It's too late. Our orange and black plague will soon consume them all. Then everyone will understand the true meaning of Halloween. Pure terror. Saying thank you and goodbye to our wonderful library doomsday planning guests, Marty Chan and Ben Elhers. Thanks for having me. I'm going to Sprucewood to fortify against the zombies. <laughs> and uh, yeah, likewise, this was a blast. I hope uh, someday to aspire to Marty's creative doomsday scenarios. But uh, um, yeah, I'm going to go play some board games with a bunch of friendly strangers. So. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. All Bye. right. And we'd also like to say thank you to again to Padmanadis who is feeding who are feeding our wonderful volunteers and also to the Earth's General Store that are coffeeing our wonderful wonderful volunteers. I had some I've had many a cup. Let me tell you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Shout for Libraries on CJSR. And coming up, we have another bone-chilling tale of ghosts in the library. Good evening, listeners. My name is Rachel Oslin, and I have two tales of true terror to share with you. My first is the McKay Avenue School Haunting. The McKay Avenue School is a third school built in Edmonton and home to the first Alberta Legislative Assembly. It is now the Edmonton Public Schools Archives and Museum, but it is also home to ghosts. As the story goes, a gentleman by the name of Ron Hadley, who is the building's preservation technician, claims to have used a Ouija board to communicate with the ghost. He goes on to tell how he learned that this ghost was once a worker named Peter, a worker who fell off the roof during construction and died in 1912. Ron also claims that there are at least half a dozen other spirits in the building. Ron kept records of the unexplained throughout his years working at the McKay Avenue School, which is told to include incidents such as chairs mysteriously scattered, taps mysteriously turned on, doors that were locked mysteriously being unlocked, pictures being removed from walls, and the security systems picking up false readings. One day in 1983, Ron and a coworker were setting up chairs in the room for a presentation the next day. They even took the precaution of stapling down the blinds to ensure that they would stay down for this presentation. When Ron returned first thing in the morning, chairs were knocked over and thrown around the room, and some blinds were up or even ripped off of the windows. According to security, no one entered the building overnight, so how could this have happened? 
There is another tale that happened only a few years ago when a staff member went into a locked basement archival storeroom to find maps strewn all over the floor and heavy custom-made cabinet drawers pulled open. It is claimed that this room is always in order, and if you know any archivists, you will know they are neat and organized people. Back in 2010, the Alberta Paranormal Investigator Society conducted an investigation. During this investigation, they went to the third floor, the location of the chair incident, and they asked if the spirit could make a noise if it was there. A resounding sound of a hammer answered. They claimed there was no one else in the building and no construction was scheduled for that day. Could this have been Peter or one of the other ghosts trying to communicate? Or is there a more logical explanation for these occurrences? I will let you decide. My next true tale is about Strathcona Museum and Archives haunting. The building was erected in 1959 as the original Strathcona County Fire Hall, and it later became home to the RCMP. Firefighters and Mounties shared the building until 1975, when it was turned over for the county's artifact collection. The museum itself opened in 1997. According to the museum's manager and curator, Star Hansen, the ghost of a guard and prison warden haunts its halls. There have been incidents where artifacts move, lights and electronics flicker on overnight, and an open Bible switches passages. There are also reports of the smell of pipe tobacco and licorice that come out of seemingly nowhere. There was even an incident where a 600-pound door was slammed shut in the face of a volunteer with no apparent cause. There have been sightings of the RCMP officer himself by Hansen, who claims the apparition appeared to her surrounded by green smoke. Though these incidents may be terrifying to some, Hansen asserts that these are friendly ghosts and is unfazed by her undead co-workers. Spooky stuff indeed. Ooh. We just want to say a quick thank you to Chris for donating. Thank you so much. Uh, don't forget, there's still plenty of time to call in and donate to CJSR's Fun Drive for your chance to win your very own special prize package that we will be drawing for in just a few minutes. Or if you're not the lucky winner of that, we also have lots of CJSR swag to give away once you donate. So get those pledges in and call us at 492 257 extension zero. So next up, we have a book review from our very own Michelle. <laughs> Hi there, this is Michelle Terrace, and you're listening to a Shout for Libraries review of the novel Severance, the debut book by Canadian author Chris Bischoltz. In keeping with the theme of this fun drive, which is the future, Severance is a sci-fi thriller set 240 years into the flight of the generation ship Argos, with passengers ready to colonize Tau Prius. As the ship nears its destination, two engineers, Laura and Bruce, set out to solve the murder of one of Laura's subordinates. Along the way, they discover a conspiracy with deadly implications and become the subjects of a ridiculous ship-wide manhunt. Severance is a Frankenstein-style story, told from the perspective of the monster, and I promise I'm not reaching for thematic consistency here, Laura's last name is Stein. Like any Frankenstein story worth its salt, our monster is a creation seeking to understand the world and her place in it with no direction from her creator. A key aspect of the story is the fact that Laura was grown in a vat and is the end result of a project started by a scientist a generation ago who died before she was born. As a result of this, and the fact that the right to have children has been a contentious and occasionally bloody issue on the Argo over the past hundred years, Laura is reviled by many inhabitants of the ship for what she represents and mistrusted by the rest who don't understand the science behind her birth. Huh? Misplaced hatred? Fear of the unknown? It's Frankenstein is all get out. An interesting result of telling the story from Laura's perspective is that the reader gets to see how a person internalizes messages that they receive about themselves. 
Young Laura is told that because of the circumstances of her birth, she might be crazy, so she acts out. And as an adult, having been told that she'll never fit in, she cultivates a standoffish personality. Only her best friend, Bruce, a kleptomaniac with impulse control issues, gets a peek behind the intentionally aggressive sarcasm at the somewhat good-natured sarcasm underneath. The biggest question asked by Severance, however, is the problem of defining what gives life meaning. At this point on the ship's life cycle, there is no need for more than 20% of the population to be working at any given time, and as a result, the crew spend most of their time trying to distract themselves from the fact that their only apparent purpose is to survive and produce the next generation. The most sane characters are an older couple who volunteer as organizers of terrible theater and drink large quantities of wine. Bad as the theater is, they are the only people you'll meet in this book who have successfully created meaning for themselves, save possibly for Bruce and his recreational thievery. In that way, and in others that get into plot spoiler territory, Severance examines the preeminence of external forces on how we view and value ourselves and our purpose. Severance is a fun thriller with solid world building and A-plus humor. The occasional minor issues of pacing, here oddly a tad too fast rather than too slow, can be chalked up to the fact that this is Chris Bischolt's first kick at the novel can. I give this book four to five stars and definitely re recommends that you pick it up at your nearest library today. And I'm back again with a second book review. Uh, this time I'm going to do a classics review of the novel Dracula, the god-awful book by Bram Stoker. Is that mean? I, I don't care. I can't express how much I hate Dracula. At least in part because of how good the first part is and how terrible it becomes in the second half. And by the way, there will be spoilers in this review. You've had 120 years to read this. The book begins with Jonathan Harker trying to sell a house to Dracula, and yes, I'm serious when I tell you that this is the best part. Jonathan tries to make it past some wolves and a few racial stereotypes and spends this entire section in Dracula's castle, slowly realizing that something is very deeply wrong and trying not to let his host know that he knows while he figures out how to get out of there. This non-plan fails horribly when Jonathan is attacked by three sexy vampire ladies who are shooed away by Dracula, who wants Jonathan for himself. Jonathan barely manages to escape by climbing down the castle walls and fleeing into the night. And there ends part one. There's drama. There's suspense. The sexism is only hitting the mandatory minimum 19th century quota. It's a pretty decent story so far. But then... The story just jumps straight to being written correspondence between Jonathan's fiancée Mina and her best friend Lucy, who's trying to decide between three men who have all proposed to her. I don't care about this, and also Lucy picked the worst one. Everyone knows that when three bachelors propose to you at the same time, you pick the cowboy. But whatever, so hey, Jonathan is maybe dead and nothing happens for a while. Eventually, Mina and Lucy meet up, a bunch of sailors are mysteriously killed on a Russian boat as it floats ashore, and I know that sounds interesting, but remember at this point, it's being written by a 19th century guy doing his best impersonation of what goes on in a 19th century woman's head. Even when cool things happen, they're recorded in the stupidest way possible. Anyway, surprise twist, the murderer is Dracula, and Lucy starts turning into a vampire. Van Helsing shows up here to give the official diagnosis, followed by Jonathan, who has a touch of brain fever for a minute, which is apparently a pretty easy thing to shake off, because he gets over it after being sick just long enough that nobody takes his warning seriously until it's too late. All the men are still in love with Lucy, so she gets blood transfusions from everybody, and it works perfectly because blood types weren't a thing back then. Lucy was totally going to be fine, but her dumb mom took all of the garlic out of her room that some weirdos put up with no explanation, so a wolf breaks in and now Lucy's a vampire. Lucy dies, Lucy's mom dies, and Lucy dies again when the bad guy, when the good guys put a stake through her heart and cut off her head. Apparently there was a good reason for that, but for some reason we're getting all of this information from a narrator who is never allowed near any of the action, so I guess we'll take their word for it. Everybody decides to kill Dracula, and they actually get around to working on this after a pointless interview interlude where Mina and Jonathan get married, which is irrelevant to the story other than making her a bigger target for Dracula. The gang decides that the best way to find him is to make the reader slog through every character's journal entries and then dig some literal dirt. 
Dracula is feeling very threatened by all of this dirt-gathering behavior, so he bites Mina, and the guys chase him back to Transylvania. Van Helsing and Mina actually face off with the three female vampires in Castle Dracula, which is admittedly not a bad section. Jonathan and the cowboy knife-fight Dracula to the death, Dracula and the cowboy die, and for some reason this clears up Mina's vampirism. The end. This book is an example of why authors should not write from perspectives that they are not familiar with. It is without a doubt the most stilted piece of literature that I have read end to end. The only reason I got through this book was my absolute conviction that it had to get better, that this couldn't possibly be what sparked the imaginations of so many people that it created an entire subgenre of fiction. But I was wrong. I give this book one and a half stars out of five because it's has a great introduction. It's one, uh, it's one compelling character, and people may disagree about who that is, but for my money, it's the cowboy. And it has a fairly exciting ending. Uh, find this book at your local library if you love love triangles, moody men, and nondescript female leads. And you heard me. I can 100% see how we got to Twilight from this. <laughs> that was Dracula by Bram Stoker. <laughs> book that you shouldn't read. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the time has come, our ghouls and goblins, to draw for our very special prize package. Thank you for all of your pledges, and please keep them coming in. You can pledge uh, by calling us at 492-2577, extension 0, or on our website at cjsr.com slash donate. All right, who's our lucky winner? All right, some suspense. And the winner is Bill. Congratulations. You are the <laughs> lucky winner of a whole lot of chocolate a whole and lot of chocolate. <laughs> some spooky themed novels. Thank you so much for tuning in to Shout for Libraries. And that's it for today's show. Thank you to our guests, Marty Chan and Ben Elhers, and all of our contributors, including Hannah Pierce, Kayla Larson, and Ursula Pillmeyer. And a special thanks to Anoop Harihan, a.k.a. Anoop Scoop, who composed our theme music. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Shout for Libraries. We'd love to hear your thoughts, too. You can find us on Facebook under Shout for Libraries or on Twitter under Shout, the number four, Libraries. Once again, I'm Michelle. And I'm Marin, And we have been your hosts for this hour of Libraries library-centric radio. Catch us on the next episode of Shout for Libraries. And up next, we have Adam and Eve. This is Spoken Word Programming on CJSR, 88.5 in Edmonton and around the world on CJSR.com. Radio for the Inquisitive. scuttles the Iran deal. What next? Tune in to the next edition of Alternative Radio and hear Trita Parsi on the Iran deal. That's Alternative Radio, Saturday morning at 11, right here on CJSR, Edmonton, radio that challenges the status quo. When CJSR came to me and said they needed my help this fun drive, I knew I just had to give back. All I ask in return is some cool swag like this year's amazing fun drive t-shirt and a Friends of CJSR card because it means so much to me, especially the shirt. Now is the time that we need to stand up tall. Hey there world. Let's raise some serious funds. Turntables are breaking. Oh, and our mics are on the frizz. But Fun Drive is the funnest drive of all.
oversold. Donate your bills and change. We are all a part of oh, this great community. And it's true, you know, your money is all we need.